Before we uh, open up God's Word together, let me just add my voice to what Ben uh, mentioned a moment ago about last night. Before we uh, open up God's Word together, let me just add my voice to what i smiling and, and interacting and it just made me so encouraged um, to be a part of uh, BPCC. Now that uh, we've, Carol's is over for another year, we've got our Christmas services coming in that, um, this Christmas season. But right now, we are going to take a few moments to just open up God's Word together. And if you're a guest with us this morning, you're coming right in on the back end of a sermon series that we've been in. Carol's is over for another year. We've got our Christmas services coming up in a couple of weeks. And I just wanted to encourage you to invite someone along to church this Christmas. I find that people are more open to spiritual conversations around this time of year. And so let me just encourage you to reach out, invite someone along Christmas Eve or Christmas morning and just see what God might do in and through your invite and in and through his local church. So let me just encourage you with that um, this Christmas season. But right now, we are going to take a few moments to just open up God's word together. And if you're a guest with us this morning, you're coming right in on the back end of a sermon series that we've been in for a couple of months now. We've been working our way through the Old Testament book of the Bible uh, called First Samuel. Now, to set up the sermon today, I want to tell you about something that happened in Western Australia in the 1970s. There was a, a wheat farmer named Leonard Casley, and he had a dispute with the WA government over wheat production quotas. So to get around it, he declared his farm to be an independent sovereign state. And he declared himself to be... Prince Leonard I. Now, amazingly, Hutt River Province, as it was uh, labelled back then, and Prince Leonard, they are still going to this day. They have their own anthem, they issue their own stamps, their own currency, their own passports. And so, if you get a little bit sick of the political scene in Australia, you can just apply to become one of Prince Leonard's subjects in the Hutt River Province. Seriously, you can check it out. It's on their website. Now, perhaps you didn't know it, but there is a micronation existing in the midst of the much larger nation of Australia. You might say that there are two kingdoms existing side by side. And the reason I point this out is because this is the kind of situation we find in the book of 1 Samuel. There are two kings existing side by side. You have King Saul. He was the king chosen by the people but rejected by God. He was tall and handsome and externally impressive. Then you have David. He was the king chosen by God. And he was young and small and from the tiny town of Bethlehem. But what we see is after defeating Goliath, which we looked at last week, David is beginning to become more and more popular among the people. This is what we read in uh, the first few verses of chapter 18, which is where we're up to in the story. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, that's Goliath, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs, with 
and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Now there's something to get under the skin of a, a proud king. In the eyes of the people, young David is on the way up and tall Saul is on the way down. But Saul is not going to go quietly. He's not just going to hand over the kingship to David and say, well, here you go, it's yours. In fact, look at what we read in verse 9. And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. And really, what we see in the rest of the book of 1 Samuel, all 14 chapters of it, is this verse play out. We see this incredible game of cat and mouse, or we might say game of thrones between David and Saul. Really what you have is Saul trying to take David out. He recognises David is a threat to his throne and he is trying to kill him. In fact, look at this map. These white dots, which I'm, I'm not sure if you can see, but they're all over the map. This is where Saul chases David throughout these final 14 chapters of 1 Samuel, all over the land of Israel and even into the Philistine city of Gath twice. And this is what we have going on in these chapters. The demise of Saul, his murderous campaign to kill David, God's chosen king. Now you might have noticed that today's sermon is on 1 Samuel chapters 18 through to 31. That's 14 chapters of the Bible. There's lots of things you shouldn't do in life and preaching one sermon on 14 chapters is probably one of them. Now obviously we can't cover everything today. We'll be here till next Sunday. And so what I'm going to do is we're just going to focus in on chapter 28. Chapter 28 shows us Saul's demise in sad detail. And it actually teaches us some incredibly important lessons. It confronts us with the question, who is the king of our lives? Is it God? Is it ourselves? Or do we have two kingdoms at play in our hearts and in our lives? So let's open up the Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 28. And we see this story unfold in three key movements. The first that we see in verses 1 to 6 is Saul's desperate situation. Because as the chapter begins, we see that the Philistines, the Israelites' arch enemies, are on the move again. And Saul is filled with terror and fear again. Look at what we read, verses 4 to 5. The Philistines assembled and came and set up camp at Shunem. While Saul gathered all Israel and set up camp at Gilboa. When Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. Now if you've been here for the last couple of months, you know that fear is the repetitive theme of Saul's life. He's filled with fear. Because fear is one of the defining characteristics of life apart from God. Fear of the future. Fear of death, fear of being bankrupt, fear of unexpected problems, fear of what everybody else thinks. I mean, if your life is crippled by fear, perhaps it's because God is in not in the right place in your life. This is what's happening for Saul. Now, he's particularly afraid for a number of reasons, not least of which is because 
not only is the Philistine army coming to get him, but he discovers that they have a special addition to their fighting force. None other than David is among the Philistine army. See, in chapter 27, we were told that David had fled to the Philistine city of Gath. And while he was there, he had proven himself to be something of a capable warrior. And so he is invited to go with the Philistines to fight the Israelites. Of course, David had no intention of fighting the Israelites, his own people. But Saul didn't know that. All Saul knew was that the Philistines were coming along with David. It seemed like his two greatest enemies had joined forces and were coming to get him. And he's terrified. But it gets even worse for poor King Saul. We read in verse 3. Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in his own town of Ramah. Do you remember Samuel? He's kind of disappeared from the story in these last few chapters, but he was the great prophet and God's mouthpiece to King Saul. In happier days, before King Saul's rejection and rebellion, Samuel would deliver messages to Saul. He would deliver God's direction to King Saul. But Samuel is now dead which means Saul is all alone. Samuel's not coming to help him. But it gets even worse for poor King Saul in verse 6. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or Urim, which is the means the priests would use to seek God's guidance, or prophets. No matter what Saul tried, he received no answer from God. And this is Saul's desperate situation. He's outgunned by the Philistines, he's alone in his terror and he's abandoned by God. Now it's kind of hard not to feel sorry for Saul, isn't it? Maybe you're wondering, well, why wouldn't God just forgive Saul? I mean, it seems a little bit harsh to just abandon him like this. But we need to think about what's going on here. Saul had repeatedly and deliberately disobeyed God. God had specifically told King Saul that he had rejected him and had chosen David to replace him. Now instead of accepting God's word, Saul was trying to kill God's chosen king again and again and again. Saul is flagrantly disobeying God and openly opposing him. It's not surprising that God is not answering him, that God is silent. Now if we're honest, we might admit that we sometimes feel a little bit like Saul, like God has left us, like God is silent. And of course this can be for any number of different reasons. Sometimes we tell God to leave us alone for so long that he actually gives us what we ask for. Sometimes we're going through a difficult time in our lives and the pain and the the difficulty can cloud out God's presence in our lives. Sometimes there is unrepentant sin in our lives that harden us to God, that make us insensitive to God's presence. And the question in those moments that we all face, the question that we must answer is what do we do? Where do we go? Is there any way back for us? The first thing I would say is that no matter who you are, no matter where you find yourself in life this morning, it's never too late to draw near to God. If there is breath in your lungs, then God is not 
finished with you. The Bible says, this promise from God, it says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. The second thing I would say is don't stop holding on to God. Even when it feels like he's absent, even when it feels like you've been abandoned, hold on and don't let go. Listen to these words of Psalm 13, which are actually the words of David. He says, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? David is in an incredibly low place. He feels as if God has completely abandoned him, cut him off. Maybe you've been there. And so what does he do? Verse 3, look on me and answer, Lord my God. He clings to God. He holds on and he doesn't let go. And this is what we must do. Maybe you know or heard about this amazing man, Nick Wojcik. He was born without arms or legs, not far from here. And we've we've had him at, at church before in the past. Now, in an interview I saw with Nick just this past week, he says that growing up, the question he had was, why? Why did you make me this way, God? And he says one day he realized that the answer to this question was, do you trust me? And Nick says that when you answer yes to that question, nothing else matters. In the midst of incredible pain, incredible confusion, Nick held on to God and he did not let go. And if you find yourself in a desperate place this morning, then I want to encourage you to hold on and don't let go. Cling to God, complain to God, turn to God and don't let go. Sadly for Saul, his desperate situation, it does not lead him to cling to God, but it leads him to a disastrous response. And this is what we see in the second movement of this story, Saul's disastrous response. Look what he does in verse 7. Saul then said to his attendants, find me a woman who is a medium, so I may go and inquire of her. With Samuel dead, with God silent, with the Philistines approaching, Saul seeks guidance from a medium, a clairvoyant, a a, a witch we might say, someone who is able to contact the dead. Now why is Saul doing this? What has driven him to, to this measure? Look at verse 11, after he finds the medium. The woman asked, Whom shall I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel, he said. Saul is desperate for guidance, desperate for help. Now I wonder what you make of mediums and psychics and fortune tellers and horoscopes and astrology. Now I know this is not just a matter of theory for for some of us. Maybe you have friends who have who visit a psychic or read the horoscopes, or maybe you do it yourself. What are we to make of it? You might say, well, they're fakes. They pretend to be able to communicate with the dead just so they can prey on vulnerable people. 
Or you might say, well, they're real. People really do become restless spirits when they die and these people really do contact the dead. What does the Bible say? Are they fake or are they real? Well, the answer is it's a bit of both. Many mediums and psychics are fakes. I mean, it's not difficult to manipulate needy people. It's not difficult to create an environment where people feel strange sensations and so forth. Many are frauds. But that's not because we live in a closed world or a purely materialistic world where all there is is all that we can see with our eyes. Now, the Bible says that there are spiritual realities that we do not see with our eyes. So while many are fakes, some might be for real. Yet if it is real, the encounter is not with departed loved ones. The Bible is clear that the dead do not speak or haunt this earth. If the encounter is real, it's with something else. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10 that Christians should not participate in these activities because it may actually involve dark spiritual forces. This is why the Old Testament laws said, do not turn to mediums or seek out spiritists, for you will be defiled by them. I am the Lord, your God. Now it's worth asking the question, why do people visit mediums? Why do they go to psychics and read the horoscopes, etc.? Now for part of the answer is that people want reassurance. They want to know that a loved one is okay. They want to know that the future will be okay. This is why Saul goes looking for a medium. He's desperate for a word of reassurance. And it's understandable. It's not wrong to want assurance about the future, but the question is, where do we turn to for assurance about the future? You might not go to horoscopes or psychics or anything, but maybe for you it's money. Maybe you hoard up money, you're not able to be generous with it because you feel like you need it to feel safe and secure for the future. Maybe it's a romantic relationship, you'll do anything to get into it and to hold on to it. Maybe it's health. Obsessively work out because you think if that you're healthy, then your future will be secure. Now none of these things are wrong or bad, but all of them are things that could be taken away from you. And so they cannot give you ultimate Security. Only the living God can give us the security that our hearts long for. And the good news of Christianity is that God has freely given us this assurance that we so desperately need. He's given it to us in his word. And even more than that, God has given us someone who has come back from the dead. Jesus Christ was dead, crucified and buried. But then three days later, he rose again from death. And he was not a ghost. He wasn't conjured up by a medium. He was physically, bodily raised again. He could be touched, seen and heard. And he came back from the grave with a message of reassurance. He said to his disciples after his resurrection, Peace be with you. See, Jesus gives us peace with God because he's paid for our sin. And he's risen again, conquering all of our enemies. And so God has given us all the reassurance that we need through his spirit-inspired word and through the finished work of Christ. Sadly though, for Saul, he knows nothing of this reassurance and he so desperately goes looking for this medium. 
and some of his men have heard about a medium from Endor. And Now, Endor was a town nearby, but it was actually behind enemy lines, which shows you how desperate Saul was. And so he puts a disguise on, he goes to visit her, and what happens at Endor is one of the few times in history when someone really does appear from the dead. The medium sees a ghostly figure. He's an old man wearing a robe. And Saul, we're told, knew it was Samuel. And so God allows this to happen because Samuel is going to deliver a word to Saul. But it's not a word of reassurance, it's a word of judgment. And that's what we see in the final movement of this story, Samuel's devastating announcement. Verse 16. Samuel said, Why do you consult me now that the Lord has departed from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done what he predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbours, to David. The Lord will deliver both Israel and you into the hands of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also give the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. Now this is not a new word for Saul. He has already heard God's word of judgment upon him. But this time he's told that he will die in battle tomorrow. And everything happens as Samuel predicts. Now after hearing this message, Saul hits rock bottom. Look at what we read in verse 20. Immediately Saul fell full length on the ground, filled with fear because of Samuel's words. His strength was gone, for he had eaten nothing all day and all that night. And so Saul ends face down before God, in exactly the same way that the Philistine god Dagon was face down before God back in chapter 4, in exactly the same way that the Philistine champion Goliath was face down before God, now Saul is face down before the Lord. You see, the Israelites wanted a king like all the other nations. The sad reality is they got exactly what they asked for. And everything happens as Samuel predicted. Saul is actually surrounded in battle by the Philistines and he ends up falling on his own sword. He commits suicide. The Philistines come and take his body and they put it on public display as a sign of their victory. And this, is how the book of 1 Samuel ends. It ends in the same way that it started, with no king in Israel. Saul is dead and David is yet to be enthroned. And it ends in this place of uncertainty and despair because it's meant to drive us forward, to point our eyes forward to God's true king, Jesus Christ. See, at the end of his life, Saul died in shame and defeat. He fell on his own sword. He's stripped of his armour. He's put on public display as a sign of his enemy's victory. He's forsaken for his own sin. At the end of his life, Jesus Christ also died in shame and defeat. He was run through, pierced with a spear. He was stripped of his clothes. He was put on public display as a sign of his enemy's victory. But there is a key difference between the two. See, Saul was forsaken for his own sin. Jesus Christ was forsaken upon the cross for our sin, for you and for me. He was dying upon our cross. He was paying our penalty. And the truth is, 
we are all like Saul. We have all failed to love and trust God in the way that we should. But instead of turning away from us, God has come near to us. And he has died the death in Jesus Christ that we deserve to die. But the good news is, is that three days later, he rose again. And he defeated death. He paid for our sin. He conquered all of our enemies because he is God's true king. So the question that First Samuel confronts us with is, is he your king? Jesus Christ is God's true king, but is he your king? Have you bowed your knee before King Jesus? Have you opened up the empty hands of faith to receive all that God gives in Jesus? Maybe you've got lots of questions. Maybe you've got lots of doubts. God's answer to you this morning is, do you trust me? God has done everything necessary for us to know him, to come to him, to enter into his glorious kingdom. The question is, will you do that? Will you receive Jesus Christ, God's true King? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, this is the most important question that we could ever answer. You have reached out to us. You have stepped down to us in Jesus. And you have come not to dominate us, but to serve us. To go to the cross, to die in our place, to rise again, to defeat our enemies and to make a way for us to know you, to love you, and to be with you forever. Lord, there are some of us here this morning that have two kingdoms in our hearts and in our lives. We want to get decisive this morning, and we want to bow both our knees before King Jesus. Because there is a day coming when every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow before our Lord, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his good name. Amen.